Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, a conference unlike any other. Today is Monday, April 6, 2020. It is the official 190th anniversary of the organization of the LDS Church on April 6, 1830. Although technically, when it was organized, it was not called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It was organized as the Church of Christ. A few years later, that title was changed to the Church of the Latter-day Saints. And finally, in 1838, the Lord got around to giving the correct and full name of the LDS Church, the name by which it has gone ever since, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We continue to be in the midst of the coronavirus or COVID-19 pandemic. We are promised that this is going to be the week, which is going to be the worst week, at least in the United States, for COVID-19 deaths. I hope that out there all of my listeners are safe and well, and that all of your family and friends are safe and well too. Here at Radio Free Mormon, I am continuing my goal of putting up a new podcast every day, or at least every weekday, in order to, in some small way, help those of you who are sheltering at home. To keep the lines of communication open, and to let you know that Radio Free Mormon continues to broadcast behind enemy lines. Yesterday concluded the historic April 2020 General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I would like to give you briefly a few of my thoughts about General Conference. Now, I did not watch all of it. I have to confess that to you. I did not watch all of General Conference. I did watch some of the sessions. In the coming days and weeks, I hope to be able to give you a fuller recounting of my analysis of General Conference. That will probably have to wait until the church gets around to putting up the transcripts of the talks on the LDS Church website. I just checked the website, and apparently they have the audio version of all the talks up. It will be a few days yet before they get the transcripts of the talks up. And it is helpful for me to be able to look at the transcripts, to be able to copy and paste them in a Word document as I did with the last General Conference, in order for me to organize my thoughts more fully. I will tell you that it was very, very helpful for me, as it turned out, to wait until just before this General Conference to do my review of last General Conference. Because of the familiarity that gave me with last General Conference, I was able to see things in this General Conference and how they grew out of or referred back to last General Conference more clearly. So here are a few of my thoughts on General Conference in no particular order. First, I want to say a few positive things about the LDS Church and the way it conducted General Conference. I was present on Saturday morning for the very beginning of General Conference, and we all knew that it was going to be different. We all knew that it was not going to be in the General Conference Center. We all knew that people, members of the church, would not be attending. And when I did turn on the conference, What I saw was a much smaller room. It was still a conference room, apparently, but it probably would sit around maybe 100, possibly 200 people at the most, and all the chairs in that room were empty. On the screen were three individuals, three church leaders sitting in chairs at least six feet apart, and I think probably more than six feet apart. President Nelson was on the far right in a high-backed red plush chair. It looked like probably the same chair that he usually sits in in General Conference. It looked like they had taken those chairs out of the General Conference Center and placed them into this much smaller conference room. President Nelson was seated on the far right. Over there to his left, at least six feet away, was, I believe, Elder Oaks. And then over on his left, from the audience's point of view once again, to his left, and I think on the other side of the lectern, was the individual who was going to be giving the opening prayer 
to commence General Conference. The reason I want to point this out as something positive is that the LDS Church, through its leadership and through the way it structured this General Conference, was signaling to the members by its example the importance of social distancing during this coronavirus pandemic. Now that may seem a small thing, especially since the leadership of the church is generally in the most vulnerable category of being over the age of 60. And when we're talking about the apostles, boy, are they over the age of 60. President Nelson himself is 96 years old. President Oaks is not far behind him. So it could certainly be said that this was out of their own self-interest that they were more than six feet apart. And yet, when we look at the news and reports are coming out of New Orleans about churches there that in spite of the government restrictions and in spite of the directions to stay away from crowds, are nevertheless continuing to have their Sunday services with all of their members assembling together at the same church. And for them, it is business as usual, or perhaps I should say for them, it is religion as usual. They seem to feel that they have some sort of exception to the direction not to assemble together. I expect they think that God will protect them because the reason that they are assembling together is to worship him. I don't know how well that's going to work out. I haven't heard anything positive in that regard. I think it is probably an unwise move for them to be doing that. So when I compare those churches, and not all churches, but those particular churches in New Orleans and elsewhere that are continuing to meet every Sunday, during this coronavirus pandemic and risk the health and well-being of their members as well as the health and well-being of everybody that those members come into contact with after church services, I have to look at the LDS church and give them kudos for not doing that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the very first words out of President Nelson's mouth when he took the stand to give his opening remarks at the beginning of General Conference was an admission that he did not see the coronavirus coming. My beloved brothers and sisters, as we welcome you to this historic April 2020 General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, for reasons you know, I stand before you in an empty auditorium. Little did I know when I promised you at the October 2019 General Conference that this April conference would be memorable and unforgettable as speaking to a visible congregation of fewer than 10 people would make this conference so memorable and unforgettable for me. We have gone over the fact in prior episodes that many, many members of the church have been floating the idea out there that President Nelson was tacitly predicting the coronavirus last general conference when he said that this general conference would be memorable and unforgettable and that it would be a conference unlike any other general conference, that they took those words of his and then ran with it and said that President Nelson, as a prophet, seer, and revelator, indeed as the prophet of God upon the face of the earth today, saw, foretold, predicted, prophesied the coronavirus that would come upon the earth, that nobody would be able to physically attend General Conference in April of 2020, and that that is why he said that this General Conference would be unlike any other General Conference. The very first words out of President Nelson's mouth put that speculation to rest, at least for anybody who takes it seriously. Because what he said was, little did I know when at last General Conference I said that this General Conference would be memorable and unforgettable, that it would be memorable and unforgettable because I would be addressing an empty room. So what I want to do here 
is to take a moment to appreciate President Nelson's honesty, because he certainly is aware of all the speculation running rampant in the church about his prophetic prowess. And he could have taken advantage of that and said that actually he did see it coming. Or he could have just remained silent on the issue and let that speculation continue to run rampant through the membership of the church. Instead, he got up and he was honest. And I've got to appreciate honesty in the president of the church. He may not be a prophet, but at least he is honest about the fact he is not a prophet. At least insofar as we define prophet as one who is able to predict the future with any degree of certainty. Now let's talk about how it was that this general conference of April 2020 was memorable and unforgettable and unlike any other conference before. Well, I watched, as I say, probably half the talks. I watched most of the sessions of general conference, though I have to admit I did fall asleep during the Saturday afternoon session. And the thing that struck me was how unremarkable it was. The talks in general conference were pretty much, by and large, the talks that you would hear in any other general conference. It was the rare speaker who actually even talked about the COVID-19 pandemic. Most of the talks could be easily interchanged with any talk given in any other general conference before this, and you would not have known the difference. So, from my way of thinking, this general conference was extraordinary simply by the fact of being so unextraordinary. It was memorable by being unmemorable, and it was unforgettable by being completely and quintessentially forgettable. It appears that when President Nelson made those comments six months ago about this conference being unforgettable and memorable, that what he was talking about were a handful of things. First off, as we know, most of the talks had to do with Joseph Smith's first vision or other events in the early history of the LDS Church related to Joseph Smith and related to the Restoration. There were several talks given about the first vision, that much we expected. There were also several talks given about early church history with what seemed to me a focus on the angelic visitors during the dedication of the Kirtland Temple in 1836 and among those visitors once again with a focus on Elijah, which of course led inexorably into a lot of talking about family history and temple work. We heard the usual trope that it was this visit from Elijah which initiated and inaugurated the worldwide interest in doing genealogical work. I remember back in the 1970s when I joined the church and Alex Haley's book, Roots, had been made into a mini-series which was showing on TV. It was hugely popular. I watched most of those episodes. And it was very common at the time to hear among Mormons the saying that it was the spirit of Elijah that had caused this interest by Alex Haley in his ancestors, which resulted in the writing of the book, which resulted in the miniseries. So, in a way, Mormons were able to take credit for the success and popularity of the miniseries Roots. And no, I'm not making that up. If any of you are as old as I am and were members of the church back in the 1970s, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. But these are things that we have heard over and over for decades. Joseph Smith's first vision, the visit of Elijah, the things that were different about this conference were very few indeed, and I expect that they include the following facts. Number one, President Nelson introduced a new logo for the church. Now, instead of just having the name for the church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, there is a picture of Jesus Christ. It is an image of the Christus statue which the Mormons have an affinity for and have adopted basically as their own, and a huge version of which appears in the Visitor Center at Temple Square in Salt Lake City. They have taken an image of the Christus statue and now placed it over the name of the church. Now, it was around 20 years ago or so 
that the LDS Church changed its logo. It had been the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It was still the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, even after the change, but they had increased the size of the name Jesus Christ in the logo so that Jesus Christ was much larger than the other words in the title of the church. That was done at the time in order to emphasize for people perhaps not familiar with the church that indeed we are a Christian church, that we do believe in Jesus Christ, and the enlarging of his name was meant to communicate that to anybody who happened to see the logo, whether they're driving by the church and see the name of the church out in front, or whether they have some other occasion to come across the logo of the church. I'm not sure if they changed the logo. It does seem that they changed the logo a bit, and once again, they have even more emphasized the name Jesus Christ, but now they have an image of Jesus Christ above that title. That's part of the logo. That is the logo, really. And I guess that if people who are not members of the church do not know that we believe in Jesus Christ because of the logo and because of the enlarging of the name Jesus Christ, if they don't get the message from that, maybe the fact that we have an image of Jesus Christ standing on top of that logo will finally get the message across. Although I do have to add that if there are Christians out there, and there are many of them who do not believe that the LDS church is a Christian church, I doubt that this change in the logo and the addition of the image of Jesus Christ is going to persuade them otherwise. Now, the logo of the church up to this point frequently has included an image of the angel Moroni, which is an image that is much more closely associated and unique to the LDS church than simply an image of the Savior. And now that we know that the logo of the church has been changed to include Jesus Christ, instead of Moroni, perhaps we're better able to contextualize the fact that a week or so ago there was an earthquake which caused the Moroni statue on top of the Salt Lake Temple to break his right arm off and drop the trumpet from his mouth. Either this was done as a sign that whereas the general membership did not know about this change in the logo that was coming and that would only be announced in general conference, God knew and therefore he was sending a sign to everybody with ears to hear and eyes to see that this change was coming, that Moroni would be displaced as the logo of the church in favor of the Savior. That was a sign. Or, looked at another way, perhaps it was a protest on the part of Moroni at being displaced as the official logo of the LES Church. Now, a change in the logo of the church is not something that happens overnight. It's not something that happens in a matter of weeks. It takes months for this to happen. And I expect that the change in the logo of the church was, in fact, one of the things that President Nelson had in mind when he said six months ago that this conference would be memorable and unforgettable. Another thing that takes many, many months and a long time in order to formulate and produce is perhaps the second thing that I think President Nelson might have meant when he talked about this conference being unforgettable. And that had to do with the unveiling of a new proclamation to the world by the LDS Church. And this is a proclamation on the Restoration. During the Sunday General Conference, there was a pre-recorded statement of President Nelson that was played for the audience. And we know it was pre-recorded because it was recorded in the Sacred Grove in New York. Now, it is unclear as to exactly when this was recorded, but I'm going to guess it was quite some time before General Conference. And while standing in the Sacred Grove, President Nelson unveils a new proclamation of the LDS Church. Now, proclamations are getting to be quite the thing in the LDS Church. We've had a number of them over the past several decades. I believe this is the sixth proclamation that the LDS Church has issued. The major ones that I was familiar with had to do with 1995, which is now 25 years ago. And that was the proclamation on the family. Five years later, in the year 2000, the church issued a proclamation called the Living Christ. These proclamations are signed by all 12 members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, 
plus the three members of the first presidency. In other words, all 15 apostles, all 15 prophets, seers, and revelators sign these proclamations. And that's one of the things that makes them a proclamation. This particular proclamation has to do with the restoration. And basically what it enunciates are simply the basic truth claims that the LDS Church has regarding the events of the restoration. The first vision with Joseph Smith, the translation of the Book of Mormon, the restoration of the priesthood, Aaronic priesthood by John the Baptist, Melchizedek priesthood by Peter, James, and John, the visit of Elijah to the Kirtland Temple, I believe is also in there. And we will be going over that proclamation in more detail in a future podcast, I'm sure. But right now, all I want to do is make a couple of comments about it. First off, this is very basic information. It's information that pretty much everybody in the church knows. I think it's information that pretty much everybody in the church knows before they graduate from primary. That's how basic this information is. If you were to look at the first discussion in the missionary discussions, it's pretty much that information. There's nothing new. There's nothing unusual. There's nothing that's surprising in this proclamation, which leads me to wonder, why is it that you are issuing this as a proclamation? There are many other places where this information is found. It's not like we need a proclamation that contains all of this old information in it and now signed by the leaders of the church, the 15 top leaders of the church. Which makes me wonder, why do we need this proclamation? What is the purpose of this proclamation? I don't know the answer to that. Perhaps there is a good answer to that, and I just don't know. And I would be interested in hearing your ideas regarding the subject. To me, it almost seems like we are having a proclamation for the sake of having a proclamation. But as I say, this proclamation must have taken many, many months to come up with, to formulate, to structure, to get everybody agreed on, to have it run through committees, to have the language tweaked exactly right prior to the 15 top leaders signing their names to it. And because of that, I suspect that this also is one of the things, along with the logo, that President Nelson was talking about six months ago when he said that this general conference would be memorable and unforgettable. Also, when President Nelson was presenting this proclamation, I remember being glad that I had talked about proclamations in an episode that went up prior to this conference. And what I talked about there with regard to proclamations was this was one of the ways, together with amending the church handbook, that church leaders have come up with in order to change doctrine, to add new doctrine, to even, in a sense, add scripture to the LDS canon without ever having to go through the process of presenting this scripture, this change in doctrine, to the membership for a sustaining vote. And with this proclamation, they did the exact same thing again. They have given new scripture to the church without any sustaining vote needed by the membership of the church. Now, I did read through the proclamation once. I haven't studied it carefully, but it does appear to me that there's really nothing new or monumental or even different that is presented in this proclamation. If anything, it is a retrenchment to the basic core orthodox correlated beliefs and truth claims of Mormonism being put into another document. That's all it is. So there's probably little harm in going through this process of publishing this new proclamation on the restoration to the world. And yet it is the process itself of issuing proclamations without the necessity of a church vote that I find problematic. Not necessarily the contents of this particular proclamation. This proclamation on the restoration, so far as I can tell right now, has nothing in it as problematic as the proclamation on the family did back in 1995 and which continues to hold 
a very important place, not just scripture, but even superscripture within the LDS church community. There was also a solemn assembly that was held, which involved a Hosanna shout and the waving of handkerchiefs, white new handkerchiefs. We don't want any used handkerchiefs being used. Thank you very much. And the white handkerchiefs were used while shouting the words of the Hosanna shout, which are, if I recall correctly, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to God and the Lamb, repeated three times and then amen, amen, and amen. Now, I may have that a bit wrong, but I think that's basically it. The three people who were on camera while this was being conducted were, I think, President Oaks, President Nelson, and Elder Holland. And while President Nelson and Elder Holland were waving the handkerchief in unison with each other, Elder Oaks was hopelessly out of step and out of rhythm with the other two. There is a point at which President Nelson actually looks over his left shoulder at Elder Oaks as if to say, what are you doing? You're out of step. Get with it, man. Get with the beat. And it immediately reminded me of my past career as a dancer because as a dancer, you want to be in lockstep with all the other dancers. You don't want to be behind the beat because then you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. I know I've been in that position before and you don't want to be doing the dance moves at the wrong time. But Elder Oaks really had little to no excuse unless he has absolutely no sense of rhythm. And that is a possibility. There are people out there with no sense of rhythm whatsoever. And it's not a criticism. It's simply a fact. But the reason I say he has no real excuse for being out of step is because President Nelson was standing in the middle of the other two and a little bit in front of the other two. President Oaks was a little bit behind and to President Nelson's left. Elder Holland was a little bit behind and to President Nelson's right. And the whole idea there is that President Nelson leads. He gets to wave his handkerchief when he wants to. And the other two who are behind him a little bit and to the side can see when he's waving the handkerchief and sync their waving of the handkerchief with President Nelson. That's the way it's supposed to work. Elder Holland understood that. He was able to sync it perfectly. President Oaks, not so much. Now, I'm not sure exactly what the purpose was of having the Hosanna shout in general conference this time. It's possible that when I go back and look at it, I'll be able to figure it out a little bit better because frankly, this was one of the parts of general conference that I did not see happening live. Now, the Hosanna shout has traditionally been done at the dedication of temples. I actually participated in the Hosanna Shout with a ton of other members and a ton of other missionaries at the dedication of the Tokyo Temple in October of 1980. All the missionaries in Japan were invited to the dedication of the temple in Tokyo. And I remember that I rode there together with the other missionaries from my mission on the bullet train, or as they call it in Japan, the Shinkansen. We rode the bullet train from Osaka over to Tokyo. And we actually did not go to the temple itself because the temple itself is built in downtown Tokyo. Many temples, when built in the U.S., have nice, spacious grounds, rolling hills of lawn, lots of shrubbery, lots of beautiful trees. In Tokyo, however, there is almost no grounds to the temple. And that's because it is so expensive, or was so expensive, I expect it still is, to buy land in downtown Tokyo, as you can imagine. In fact, I remember the rumor going about among the missionaries at the time that if you took a $100 bill and laid it on the ground outside the Tokyo Temple, that the space that the $100 bill covered would be the price you would have to pay to buy the land under the $100 bill. I have no idea whether that's true, but I do remember that rumor going around. So as I say, we did not meet at the temple. I'm not even sure how close to the temple we were. We met at a big auditorium somewhere, which I expect was miles away from the temple, but it was in Tokyo. And this auditorium had a big parking lot, and that is where we met and went in to go in and do the dedication of the Tokyo temple. President Kimball was present for that. Also, I remember that Elder Mark E. Peterson was there. 
And I remember that at one point during the day, between sessions, another missionary and I were walking around the outside of the auditorium, and we were just talking about this and that, when all of a sudden we were surprised by none other than Elder Peterson come walking the other way around the corner. And we saw him, and I remember saying, Hi, President Peterson, and shaking his hand, and the other missionary saying, Hi, President Peterson, and shaking his hand, and he was very courteous, and he said, Hello, elders, and then he continued walking on. And I remember looking at the other missionary after Marky Peterson had passed by and going, president and we felt so stupid because we'd called him president peterson when actually he wasn't president he was elder peterson the things one remembers but that was a temple dedication at which all the missionaries were told to bring a clean white handkerchief and so we did that we waved it during the hosanna shout we did the hosanna shout and i remember taking that handkerchief i'm sure it was suggested to us by other people but i took that handkerchief and i wrote on it my name that it was used in the Hosanna Shout in October, and I'm sure I put the exact date down on it, 1980, of the Tokyo Temple. And I folded it up and I put it away. And it still exists somewhere. I'm not exactly sure where it is, but it still exists. That handkerchief that I used for the Hosanna Shout of the Tokyo Temple in 1980. Speaking of the things that one remembers, let me tell you a couple of other stories about the dedication that I attended. The first was that that was my opportunity to shake hands with the president of the church, Spencer Kimball, and this happened after the dedicatory sessions were over and shortly before the general authorities and the people who accompanied them left the area. It was out in the parking lot. It was the afternoon of a sunny October day in Tokyo, Japan, and President Kimball was out there and he was being thronged by other missionaries, all of them with the same idea in mind that I had, which was to take this opportunity to shake the hand with the prophet of God on the face of the earth. I remember making my way forward in the throng, and as I approached closer and closer to Spencer Kimball, who was surrounded by missionaries, and seeing that he was being guided by his secretary, who I believe at the time was Arthur Haycock. And Arthur Haycock was sort of his support. President Kimball was not in the best of health. It is 1980 at the time. And I remember finally getting up to the front of this throng and moving my way through it and extending my hand and reaching out and shaking President Kimball's hand. Unfortunately, at the very moment that I shook his hand, his attention was directed elsewhere by somebody else. So I ended up shaking a sort of disembodied hand of President Kimball. He wasn't looking at me as I shook his hand. He was looking somewhere else off to his right, probably at another missionary. But that was my one and only experience shaking the hand of the president of the church. It was not everything I had hoped it would be. The other story I want to tell you about was the transportation that was arranged for the leadership of the church, including the president of the church, because they had to have a way of getting from wherever it was they were staying in Tokyo out to the auditorium in order to do the temple dedication. And the people who were involved got them a huge bus. And the huge bus wasn't what was funny. It was what was painted on the outside of the bus because it was painted purple. And on the side of the bus was painted a huge Playboy Bunny logo. You want to talk about church logos. I'll never forget that Playboy Bunny logo on the side of the bus. So at the end of the entire conference, after I've had my experience shaking hands with President Kimball, President Kimball and Marky Peterson and all the other church leaders who had come out there for the dedication, I got to watch them all get on board this Playboy bus and ride off into the sunset. That is an image that will stay with me forever. So as I say, it was very clear to me at that time why I did the Hosanna shout because it was for a dedication of the temple and it is traditionally and customarily done at dedications for the temple. But I'm not exactly sure why it was that in this particular general conference, we did the Hosanna shout in the context of what was called a solemn assembly, especially when during the coronavirus, there really could not be an assembly of anybody, solemn or otherwise. And I am not sure why this Hosanna shout was not advertised in advance. 
Because if it had been, then members could have had their own white handkerchiefs, which they had purchased or gotten at the store, and they could have saved those as mementos of the event, much as I saved my handkerchief from 1980 as a memento of the event. But it was only announced shortly before it was to take place, and people were told to get a handkerchief. It has to be a clean handkerchief, mind you. A handkerchief, or if they didn't have that, they could use a tissue or a paper towel, or if they didn't have any of those things, they could just wave their hand with nothing in it while they recited the Hosanna shout. So I do not know if the Hosanna shout was conceived of by President Nelson six months ago, and that was the other thing that he had in mind that would make this general conference so memorable and remarkable. But those are the three things that I can come up with. The new church logo, the new proclamation, and possibly the Hosanna shout. Now, unfortunately, any of these new things, or all of them combined, seem to pale in comparison to the COVID-19 pandemic, the impact it's having on people getting sick, on people dying, on the economy, not just in Utah, not just in the United States, but throughout the entire world. The priority that was placed on the proclamation, on the new church logo, and on the Hosanna shout appear to be somewhat misplaced. That's just my personal opinion. They seem to pale in comparison to what's actually happening and transpiring in the real world. Now, President Nelson did make an announcement related to the pandemic, and that announcement was that this coming Friday, Palm Sunday, April 10th, there will be another church-wide day of fasting and prayer in order to abate the coronavirus and the effects it's having on the economy and on the health and welfare of so many. You will recall that just the prior Sunday before conference, President Nelson had called for another day of fasting and prayer in order to abate the effects of the coronavirus. Well, apparently that one didn't do the trick, so we're going to give it another whack. And that second day of fasting and prayer will be on Friday, April 10th, 2020. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And I suppose we can continue having days of fasting and prayer until the coronavirus is defeated and then the LDS Church can take credit for it. Because it is impossible to prove that the days of fasting and prayer held by the LDS Church were not the thing that turned away and defeated the coronavirus. One other thing that I remember and that I want to comment on briefly here, though I will go into it in greater depth in a future podcast, had to do with remarks by Elder Oaks, of course, during General Conference. He talked about the people leaving the church. He talked about the people having their names removed from the church. And if I recall his comments correctly, he said that the vast majority of people who leave the church do so because they just don't understand the basic nuts and bolts of the plan of salvation. He gave a talk that reiterated all the things that everybody in the church knows, everybody in the church knows about the plan of salvation. And then at the end, he said that the reason people leave the church is because they don't understand these basic nuts and bolts about the plan of salvation. And if they did, well, they wouldn't have left the church in the first place. In conclusion, I share the conviction that has come to me from many letters and by reviewing many requests to return to the church after name removal or apostasy. Many of our members do not fully understand this plan of salvation, which answers most questions about the doctrine and inspired policies of the restored Church. We who know God's plan and who have covenanted to participate have a clear responsibility to teach these truths and do all that we can to further them for others and in our own circumstances in mortality. I think that is probably wishful thinking on Elder Oak's part. And I've got to think that he knows that that really isn't the case. But, you know, whatever helps you get to sleep at night, Elder Oaks. But it wasn't just Elder Oaks who gave this kind of message. Surprisingly, Elder Uchtdorf 
chimed in with a very similar kind of message. Elder Uchtdorf gave a talk in which he likened people who leave the church to petulant children running away from home. This reminded me very much of the Renlund's devotional talk in which they likened people leaving the church to ungrateful children being rescued from sea by an old salty sailor who is hard of hearing in a dented and unpainted dinghy. You remember the talk. But it likened those who were dissatisfied with the way the church was functioning with little kids who did not appreciate being saved and were focusing too much on the minor problems with the vessel instead of focusing on the fact that it had saved them from certain death. In a similar way, Elder Uchtdorf likens members who leave the church to petulant children throwing a tantrum. As we incline our hearts to our Heavenly Father and draw near to Him, we will feel Him draw near to us. We are His beloved children, even those who reject Him. Even those who, like a headstrong, unruly child, become angry with God and his church, pack their backs and storm out the door, proclaiming that they are running away and never coming back. When a child runs away from home, he or she may not notice the concerned parents looking out the window with tender hearts. They watch their son or daughter go, hoping their precious child will learn something from this heart-rending experience and perhaps see life with new eyes and eventually return home. It is hard to reconcile this language from the same Elder Uchtdorf who just a few years ago made headlines by acknowledging the fact that people who left the church actually had good reasons for doing so and admitting that leaders of the church had not always acted in accordance with the best principles of the church. So to hear this kind of language from Elder Uchtdorf was very disconcerting to a number of people. Either he has changed his mind since a few years ago when he gave the first conference talk, or there has been a great deal of pressure put on him to get in line with the chorus of other church leaders on the subject. I am sure that at a minimum, Elder Renlund and President Oaks were very proud. Regardless of the reason, Elder Uchtdorf's talk was quite disappointing. Oh, how the mighty are fallen. So now, really quickly, before I close this podcast, I would like to get to a little bit of listener mail. I've been getting a lot of comments on the webpage, on the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage, and also a number of comments and messages on the Radio Free Mormon Facebook page. I finally got a Facebook page a couple of weeks ago. I ignored it for a while. I put up a few episodes, and then more recently during the past week, I've been putting up the episodes that I've been doing every day for the past two weeks, and there have been a number of comments and private messages that I have received there. But before I close, I want to read a couple of comments from the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage. On April 3rd, Angie Coulter says this, Massive kudos, exclamation point. Your podcasts this week have seen me through some very unpleasant family stuff. I literally laughed out loud at your signature discovery of the theme, Faith Not to be Healed by the Priesthood Power, in conference talks. By the way, this reminds me that I have an idea that one of the podcasts this week I may do is simply going back to 2019 October General Conference and collecting those eight talks that involve stories about people not being healed by the priesthood and simply collecting them and playing them one after another, interspersed perhaps with a bit of brief commentary on my part in order to keep the record clear that indeed there were that many stories about people not being healed by the priesthood in that general conference. We'll see if I get around to doing that. Angie Coulter goes on in her comment, when you said the worst thing anyone dying could do is ask President Eyring for a blessing, it was the darkest, funniest moment in the whole podcast. I had to pretend I was laughing about something else because my TBM husband, 
was in the room, LOL. Your brilliant sense of humor, thank you. Your brilliant sense of humor has the power to heal many a broken Exmo's heart, exclamation point. Well, thank you very much, Angie Coulter. I appreciate your comments and I appreciate your listening to the podcast. Chris Tollworthy makes a comment on April 4th and he gives us a very, very interesting story which he created and obviously based upon my discussion of President Eyring as being the king of giving priesthood blessings that end up with people dying. Here is Chris Tollworthy's contribution to the subject. It is called The Pentagram Anagram, A Horror Story. President Grim Reaper stands at the door. The doctors know their patient must be very important. They bring out the special death certificate that only he may complete. The one stamped only signed by the Reaper, and only signed by the Reaper is in quotation marks and in all capital letters. Only signed by the Reaper. Five words stamped in the official church pentagram, modeled after those on the Nauvoo Temple. The visitor nods. There must be paperwork or people would question the body count. A bony finger lightly brushes the parchment as the figure floats by. The letters glow and rearrange like reformed Egyptian on a seer stone. And the words now, only signed by the Reaper, all capitals, becomes Apostle Henry B. Eyring. And at the end of the story, he has in parentheses, yes, it's an anagram. So, of course, an anagram is a word that is made by rearranging the letters of another word or a phrase that is made by rearranging the letters of another phrase. And what Chris Tolworthy did was he came up with an anagram for Apostle Henry B. Eyring, and that anagram is only sign by the Reaper. That's why he titles his story The Pentagram Anagram. This, to me, is remarkably clever, and I definitely wanted to include this story in a podcast. My hat is off to Chris Tolworthy for his inventiveness and his wonderful pentagram anagram horror story. Nice work, Chris Tolworthy. Finally, I want to read a comment from Dave on April 5th, 2020, because here he is trying to make sense out of the fact that demonstrably leaders of the church tell story after story of people dying in spite of receiving priesthood blessings, apparently no story of people living or surviving or being healed or made whole by priesthood blessings, and yet trying to juxtapose and make sense of that with his own personal experience where he has experienced miraculous healings through the priesthood. Here's what he says. Thank you for your outstanding dedication to sharing your thoughts with us concerning October 2019. It was a tough assignment that you set yourself. Eight podcasts, entirely for the benefit of others, possibly like me, who are struggling to make sense of why the heck have I just spent 40 years of my life and substantial resources of time and money on something that turns out to be a pack of lies. Dave goes on. Podcast 8 struck a chord with me in a number of ways, especially to do with the lack of any demonstration of power in the priesthood within the church leadership. I eat no healings, no miracles, no revelation, nothing. Yet I have witnessed these things at local ward level. So here he's going to tell us about some of his personal experiences. Over 40 years, I have served mainly in leadership positions too numerous to mention, including 10 years on stake high council and stake mission president. I have been involved in countless blessings and witnessed people recover from sometimes serious issues. One of our 12-year-old boys in the ward was diagnosed with a stomach cancer too big to operate. His future was very uncertain. The whole ward fasted and prayed. A blessing was given. He recovered without surgery. That was about 30 years ago. One of my most dramatic experiences was somewhat unusual 
in that it involved my mother's budgie. My mother, a non-member, had been abandoned by my father, and she was devastated. One of her comforts was her little budgie, Joey. I called to see her, as I often did, and she was in tears. She had taken Joey to see the vet. The feathers on his chest had fallen out, and in their place was a large bare swelling. He had a malignant tumor. The vet could do nothing and said that he would not live long. My mother was heartbroken. She loved that little bird. I returned home and asked God for his advice. He told me what to do. I took Christine, my wife, with me. We gave Joey a blessing. Okay, hang on a second here. <laughs> I noticed something unorthodox already, okay? I don't mean to interrupt this story because it's a very, very good story, but he's taking his wife Christine with him. He's supposed to take one of the elders, isn't he, if you're going to give a blessing? But I think that I understand where Dave's coming from because if you're blessing an animal, the rules regarding priesthood blessings don't necessarily apply. And maybe it was a good thing because apparently this blessing worked. I took Christine, my wife, with me. We gave Joey a blessing and told Mum not to worry. Things were going to be fine. Two days later, Chris, that's his wife, Christine, Chris and I went to see Joey. And not only was he still alive, the swelling had gone and his feathers had grown back. As God is my witness, this is true. My wife can vouch for this. How is it that a daft lad like me and probably many people at ward level can experience these things and yet our leaders don't seem to have enough faith to even try to give a blessing of hope and healing? Oh, I could go on, but let that suffice. I believe totally in personal revelation and have had some wonderful experiences. Thank you, RFM. God bless you. And then in a postscript, he adds, Joey lived for another seven years. Well, first off, thank you, Dave, for writing and sharing that personal story. That is a wonderful story about Joey, as well as about that 12-year-old boy who was diagnosed with stomach cancer. Now, obviously, there are thousands of priesthood blessings that are given, and there are a handful of people, and perhaps even animals and budgies, who recover. It is impossible to say whether these people and animals would have recovered anyway. Maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. I can't tell, nobody can tell, but statistically speaking, I think that it is uncontrovertible that out of thousands of people and animals who are diagnosed with serious medical issues, there is a small percentage who will recover regardless of medical intervention and regardless of spiritual intervention. And it may be that sometimes when we give thousands of blessings to all these different people and animals who have these serious medical issues, that when that handful, that small percentage recover, that we are likely to attribute that to priesthood power and then engage in what is sometimes called the Texas sharpshooter fallacy by focusing on those people, those rare instances where they do recover as evidence that our faith, our prayers, our priesthood blessings work while disregarding or not taking into account or not remembering the much larger number of priesthood blessings that we've given where there was no beneficial effect. Now, I think that answers part of the question. Perhaps it answers all the question. I don't know. But I will say, Dave, that I have experienced some very unusual things in my personal life as well. And I want to share this one story with my audience, okay? Because here's the deal. I have a very bad track record of having prayers answered, of having priesthood blessings be given effect. I cannot recall any time that I have given a priesthood blessing where there was a miraculous healing. And on top of that, in spite of the many, many prayers that I have given to God, I can recall very few instances 
where those prayers have been answered. But I can recall one instance in which such a prayer was answered, and it was answered in a dramatic way, and it was answered in a way that I cannot give you any rational explanation for it, and that is the story I'm going to tell you about today. It involved a cat. Now, I used to live on six acres out in the country, and this is where my kids were raised, and I lived there for about 20 years, from around 1996 to about 2017, so just a little bit more than 20 years I lived there. And of course, living out in the country and having a bunch of kids, we had a whole lot of pets. And at this particular time, and this may have been, gee, around 20? This might have been 20 years ago now. We had a whole lot of cats. Now, this started with having one cat, and this was a barn cat. This was an outdoor cat, and her name was Miss Mouser. The name was given to her by the kids, and the reason why is because she had the shape of an M on her forehead. She was a little gray cat with tortoiseshell markings, and the tortoiseshell ended up giving her what looked like an M on her forehead. So the kids called her Mouser, and then she began to be called Miss Mouser. Well, Miss Mouser was not fixed, and she ended up having a whole litter of kittens, and they were adorable kittens, and the kids loved these kittens. But at one point, Miss Mouser went missing. And I remember driving home from work one day, and all the kids were outside, and they're running around, and they're calling Miss Mouser, Miss Mouser, and I find that she has disappeared. Nobody knows where Miss Mouser is, and everybody's worried that something bad has happened to her. And they want me, as the father and as the priesthood holder in the family, as the patriarch, to be able to pray to God to find Miss Mouser. Well, I don't have any faith that this is going to work. I have tried this before in numerous contexts. You hear the stories about people praying to find lost keys. When they find them, well, I'm the person who prays to find lost keys, and I can't find them. I have a very, very bad batting average with praying to God and having my prayers answered. But everybody's looking up to me. So while they are out there running around, I stand on the front doorstep of the house and I fold my arms and I bow my head and I pray to God. It's pretty much a prayer of despair. God, please help me find Miss Mouser. And after I did that, that's when the strangest thing happened. Because by the way, even if I pray or I don't pray, I can never find things that are lost. I just do not have that ability. I can lose things like nobody's business, but finding them after they're lost, that's another story. So I say this prayer standing on the front steps of the house, and immediately I begin walking. And here's the strange thing. It's not like I'm walking. It's like somebody is directing my steps. So I step down off the steps. I walk to the gravel driveway. I make an immediate left. I walk down the gravel driveway to the garage. The garage door is open. I walk through the open garage door. I walk to the far end of the garage. And at the far end of the garage, there is a cardboard box. And this is a cardboard box that is open. It's tall. It's maybe up to my waist. So it's not something that I could see in unless I stood right next to it. As I say, I walked to the gravel driveway, turned immediately left, walked right down the gravel driveway to the garage, walked into the garage and directly to that box. And standing right next to that box, I looked down and there was Mouser curled up at the bottom of that box. I could not have gotten there any more directly if I had known exactly where she was. And I'm telling you this 100% truthfully. I was not looking around. I did not finally find the box. I'm not reconfiguring my story to make it sound more miraculous than it was. This is exactly the way it happened. And the reason I remember it so much is because I've never had anything like this happen before or since. It was as if somebody was directing me. It was as if somebody had sort of possessed my body, but this is overstating it because I didn't feel like I was possessed. All I felt like is that I was walking and I sort of knew where to go. And I didn't know that I knew where to go 
until I found that I was right. It was as if somebody else or some other power was directing my steps so that I could go to a place to find Mouser, a place, by the way, that all of the kids had not located in spite of spending hours prior to my getting home looking for her. Well, Mouser was curled up there because she was very, very sick. In fact, she had curled up to die. She had had some complications, I think, from having all these kittens. And we were able to get her to the vet in time for him to do an operation and save her life. So what I am saying here and what I'm saying to you, Dave, is that I have experienced some things in my life too that I cannot account for simply by naturalistic causes. And my initial response to things like this is to try and look for a naturalistic cause. But in this one case, I am unable to do so. Now this also raises huge theological problems. If God is interested enough in finding a cat, a barn cat, to save their life, and interested enough to answer my prayer to direct me exactly to where that cat is hidden, why does not God answer the prayers of millions of other people for things that are much more serious than saving the life of a barn cat? I cannot answer that. All I can do is throw up my hands and say, I don't know the answer to that. It doesn't make any sense to me either. But that doesn't mean that I can deny what it is that happened with me finding Miss Mouser on that sunny afternoon 20 years ago. And I have to agree with Dave that if I've had experiences like that, I don't know why church leaders have not had experiences like that. I can suggest that people who are called as church leaders tend to have different qualities that the church is looking for among church leadership. And those qualities may not be so much spiritual experiences or being in tune with revelation as they are an ability to do what they're told and to do it well. I think it was Harold B. Lee who said that being faithful in the church is good, but being faithful and competent is better. That seems to be the general idea among church leadership as to the qualities they're looking for for people that they're calling to take roles in church leadership. So thank you, Dave, for sharing your story about your mom's budgie, Joey, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to tell you about our cat, Miss Mouser. Well, that is about all for tonight. In the coming days, I expect I will be going over General Conference from April of 2020 in greater detail. I will see if I can get through another week issuing a new podcast every day. At least that is my goal. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.